You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. I'm reading from Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Thank you. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together to worship. I pray, Father, that our time together has already and will continue to be honoring and glorifying to you. We have come together to worship to adore, to ascribe to you the glory that is due your name. And so, Father, we ask that the Spirit would be active in our midst this morning, that as the Word of God is opened and explained, that the Spirit would work in power. We pray this for our own good 
and for your glory. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. On May 11th, 1957, evangelist Billy Graham sat down to be interviewed on the CBS Evening Evening News by Walter Cronkite. Graham was preparing to begin an evangelistic crusade in New York City that was scheduled to begin May 15th and run for six weeks. At the time, Billy Graham was just 38 years old. He had only been widely known for a handful of years. During his life in ministry as an evangelist, Billy Graham led 417 crusades in 185 countries on six continents. But he never experienced anything like what happened in New York City in 1957. As the planned six-week crusade neared its end, the decision was made to extend it. And in fact, this happened three times. The evangelistic crusade that was scheduled for only six weeks ultimately continued for 16 weeks. It started May 15th and ran until September 1st. All in all, nearly 2 million people attended the regular meetings. Another 400,000 attended miscellaneous and overflow meetings and more than 60,000 decision cards were turned in. Now, friends, whatever you may think of Billy Graham, mass evangelism, and everything that goes along with both, millions of people heard the gospel and tens of thousands testified that they turned to Christ in saving faith. Here's what I was struck with as I read about Graham's crusade in New York in 1957. Night after night, he simply preached the Bible. He declared the good news of the gospel with passion and clarity, and what happened then was up to God. A group of people gathered, they heard the gospel, and they were forced to decide, either dismiss the truth of Christ crucified and risen or embrace him by faith. The decision placed before every person that attended Graham's New York crusade is the very same decision that all people everywhere will face at some point. And it's the decision we all face. Will we submit in faith to the Lordship of Christ? Or will we reject him and walk away? In our text this morning, we'll meet two different crowds of people. Both will hear the gospel and be confronted with the truth concerning Jesus Christ. And yet we will see very different responses. First, look with me at audience number one. Audience number one, they are gathered in Thessalonica, beginning in verse one. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. 
As Paul continues on this missionary journey, he and his team arrive in Thessalonica, and the text tells us that Paul did what he always did when he arrived in a new place. If there was a synagogue, he would find it and begin teaching there as long as he was permitted to. And friends, what would he teach? This isn't the first time we've seen this happening, but let me draw your attention to it again. Midway through verse 2, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. I want you to notice that the source of everything Paul was saying to those gathered in the synagogue was the scriptures. Paul understood that he was commissioned by God to be a mouthpiece for the sacred text. His missionary task was not to build a platform for himself or to share his own ideas. It was not to come to the people with something novel or creative No, brothers and sisters, Paul's task was to take the scriptures and to do two things. Open and explain. Open and explain. In fact, the two words that we have translated as explain and prove carry the ideas of opening something up in a way that reveals its true meaning. To open and lay before someone. Paul's goal was to open the scriptures and to lay before the people with great clarity the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to show how the Old Testament scriptures pointed to Jesus. I love the way one commentator describes Paul's teaching of the scriptures in the synagogue, he points out that Paul expounded the scriptures Christocentrically, boldly, and intelligently. Paul did what Jesus did in Luke 24. He worked his way through the Old Testament scriptures, showing how they pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, listen to Luke 24 26, where Jesus did exactly what Paul is now doing in Thessalonica. Luke 24, 26, Jesus said to the disciples on the Emmaus Road, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? Friends, this was the focus of Paul's teaching as well. He wanted He wanted to connect what the scriptures said about the promised Messiah with what actually happened to the man named Jesus. Paul's desire was that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of those listening to him to connect the biblical Christ with the historical Jesus. This person you read about was Jesus. Bow before him. In humble repentance, believe in him. This is why Paul declares at the end of verse 3, this Jesus, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Paul taught the scriptures Christocentrically, but he also taught boldly. So we need to understand that what Paul was explaining in this synagogue is the very same message 
that had gotten him into so much trouble in other places. So why would, why would he not only be willing to proclaim the gospel, but to do it in such a public way? Right? He's not doing it in secret. He's going to a very public place where everyone will know, where everyone will see, where everyone will hear about what's going on. And there he teaches the scriptures. Why would he do that? If you're trying to stay safe, not get dragged out into the street, not get your clothes stripped off, not get beaten, this doesn't seem like a wise decision. But brothers and sisters, Paul does this because he really did believe it was good news. He really did believe it was good news. He believed that Jesus deserved the worship of these Thessalonians. In fact, in his later correspondence to these same people, Paul reminisced that when they heard the gospel, listen to this, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what motivated Paul. That's why he would do this. That's why he would risk his own life. Paul was moved by the Holy Spirit. And his heart was filled with compassion when he saw the hopeless condition of the people in Thessalonica. They were worshiping idols. And in response to this great spiritual need, the Holy Spirit gave Paul strength and boldness to declare the gospel. And in so doing, his primary concern was not his safety, but the good news of the Savior. Brothers and sisters, this, this has come up before in our study through Acts, but I need to ask it again. Do we see those who are not worshiping Jesus as enslaved to idolatry? Do we see those who are not worshiping Jesus as enslaved to idolatry? And in response, are we moved with compassion and stirred to action when we consider their, their hopeless and their helpless state? In other words, uh, here's what I'm asking. Do you see people? Do you see the people that surround you every day as God sees them? This would be a good prayer for each of us as we go throughout our days, as we interact with our neighbors and our co-workers. God, give me eyes to see the people around me as you see them. That I might be moved with compassion to share with them the message of Jesus Christ, that I would not regard how I might be viewed, how people might see me, but I would seek to make Christ known to those who desperately need to hear of him. Paul taught the scriptures Christocentrically, boldly, but also intelligently. John Stott points out the progression of Paul's teaching. He reasoned, explained, proved, proclaimed, and persuaded. Like a skilled teacher, Paul carefully made his 
case. He is speaking rationally, logically, and cogently to his audience. He is reasoning from Scripture, but he's also doing it in a way that makes sense. He's he's wanting to persuade them. Now, it's important that I that I don't give you the impression that someone can become a Christian simply by hearing a convincing argument and then intellectually agreeing with what they've heard. No, while Paul did teach intelligently, and and so should we, there is something more that is needed for a sinner to come to faith in Christ. A miracle must take place. Even though Paul was offering them a persuasive argument. Those sitting before him needed God to grant repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. They they needed the divine light to shine into their spiritual darkness. Give them a new heart and new eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So friends, is this, is this what happened in response to Paul's teaching? The gospel has been declared to this first audience. And notice now their response. The response of audience number one, verse four. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. In response to Paul's gospel exposition, some did believe. Some experienced the miracle of regeneration. They were born again. Some Jews, the text says, a great many devout Greeks and not a few leading women in this moment were changed forever by the gospel. And brothers and sisters, here's what I love about this. First, this reminds us that the gospel doesn't discriminate. It is a message for all people about a salvation available to all people. You see, it doesn't matter if you're on the fringes of society, marginalized and ostracized by most people. Jesus doesn't play favorites. He invites all people to come, repent, believe, and be accepted. This is the lesson Peter had to learn back in chapter 10, if you remember. It's a lesson some of us need to learn as well. This is something I need to beat into my own head. Do you you remember what happened when Peter had a bizarre vision leading him to take the gospel to Cornelius? Well, God, God had to deal with some prejudice in his heart. But here was the conclusion of God's gracious work in the heart of Peter, Acts 10, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth, said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. If the gospel is for all people, and it is, then the church should be a home 
to anyone who comes to faith in Christ. Isn't this what we've encountered all throughout our study of Acts so far? Jew, Gentile, men, women, children, rich, poor. The gospel is being preached to all. And God is creating a new family made up of a very diverse group of rescued sinners. That's one of the things that's so beautiful about local churches. When they're functioning well, when they embrace the scriptures and obey the scriptures, it's that not everybody in the building is exactly the same. That points to the power of the gospel. Well, we want to pause often and marvel at God's saving grace. I want you to notice the response of this first audience that Luke emphasizes most. Look at verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. Taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Some Jews, probably leaders in the synagogue, responded to Paul's persuasive and effective preaching of the gospel with jealousy. You see, these Jewish religious leaders saw those who responded to the gospel as possible disciples of their own religious system. They believed they were right and Paul was wrong, but Paul was poaching their potential converts. And so they became jealous. Someone was outdoing them. As we've seen before, their jealousy leads them to act violently. And this sounds similar to what we encountered in Chapter 16, doesn't it? These jealous religious leaders recruit some unsavory characters and together they form an angry mob. The angry mob then riles up the general public and they attack the house of a man named Jason, someone who had shown hospitality to Paul and Silas, which again, how many times in the last several chapters have we seen these new believers showing hospitality even when it put them in danger. Again, like we've seen before, these opponents of the gospel are making serious public accusations about the leaders of the early church. Verse 6. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Essentially, the jealous religious leaders and their mob accused Paul and Silas of what? Of high treason. But friends, this shouldn't be a surprise. This is nothing new. This is what happened to Jesus as well. One theologian writes, just as Jesus had been accused before Pilate of sedition, 
of subverting the nation by claiming himself to be Christ the king. So Paul's teaching about the kingdom of God has now landed him in the same situation. When the angry mob declares that these men have turned the world upside down, do you realize that they don't mean that as a compliment? They are not only accusing them of disrupting their way of life, but they are claiming that the teaching of Paul and Silas is an all-out attack on the very fabric of their religious and political structures. Which is true in one way, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, how do Paul and Silas's opponents describe what is at the heart of this incredibly disruptive, countercultural message? Well, look at verse 7. They were announcing that there is another king, Jesus. On the one hand, the opponents of Paul and Silas were right. They were proclaiming another king. But on the other hand, the Jewish leaders were terribly misrepresenting their message. You see, Paul and Silas were not proclaiming a political message in the sense that they were plotting to overthrow Roman rule, which is, which is what these opponents wanted the people to think. No, Paul and Silas were simply preaching the gospel, which is the good news of King Jesus and his everlasting kingdom. They were telling the people, this isn't all there is. There's something better. We want to introduce you to the, the good king and his everlasting kingdom. Here was the essence of their message. They were inviting all people to bow before King Jesus and submit to his loving rule. Now, this would certainly entail new priorities and loyalties for those who became disciples. It would lead to the transformation of personal relationships, business, and personal ethics, social structures and ambitions, new attitudes toward other religions, and changed ways of relating to Caesar and his representatives. Right? So in some sense, they, these opponents understood what was going on. Whatever message this is, this message of King Jesus, it is disruptive. But we need to Understand that the accusation, the accusation should not have been that Paul and Silas were turning the world upside down, but they were trying to turn it right side up. Their mission was to set everything as it should be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we need to realize that like Paul and Silas, we live in a world that is, that is not as it should be. The prophet Isaiah described our world well when he warns those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. 
Those who reject God and his gospel will say they are doing so because they want to be free and they will claim that this is the way life should be. But friends, friends, the worst form of slavery is to live under the cruel and hopeless tyranny of your own lordship. This is why the gospel is such good news, because God saves us from ourselves. And he places us under the infinitely good rule of a perfect and benevolent king, one who is willing to give his life for the joy and peace of his people. That is a disruptive message. Why? Because it actually is freeing. While some believed, audience number one heard the gospel and most rejected. They rejected the good king and actually wanted to kill his messenger. Now look with me at audience number two. This audience is gathered in Berea, beginning in verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. The story of audience number two begins exactly the same as the story of audience number one. Paul went to the same place and likely preached the same message. He explained that Jesus was the Christ, the promised Messiah. He announced that the king had come. And of course, he would have laid this all before the Bereans, having shown it to them in the scriptures. So, will audience two respond like audience one did? Well, in a word, no. Look at the response of audience number two, verse 11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The text says that this group gathered in Berea were more noble than those who gathered in Thessalonica. What does that mean? It means that they were more open-minded, more level-headed, more willing to listen and carefully consider what they had heard, less likely to drag you into the street and kill you. Right? This noble group of Jews and others, when they heard Paul explain the person and work of Jesus from the scriptures, what does the text say? They received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Paul offered a, a new way of understanding the scriptures, and the Bereans were intrigued. So much so that they interacted with Paul on a daily basis seeking to fully understand what he had explained to them. Can you picture it with me? A group of people thinking they knew the Old Testament scriptures. All of a sudden, this guy shows up in the synagogue. He starts connecting some dots that you've never heard before. You're intrigued by this. And you, you go to him day after day and go, okay, wait, wait, wait. Let me get this straight. You said, this, okay, this is what's happening. But brothers and sisters, here is what convicted me 
when I was studying this text. If you look, if you look at the order in which Luke describes the Bereans' response, they receive the word with eagerness and examine the scriptures daily before they believed. Now, obviously, the Spirit was working powerfully in this group of people, but but think about it. Do we see here in our text, do we see here a group of unbelievers who have a much deeper hunger and longing for the word of God than many of us do? Could your attitude toward God's word and the teaching of God's word be described as eager and enthusiastic? Are you fervently digging into the scriptures on a daily basis to better understand the person and work of Jesus Christ? Now, I'm I'm not bringing this up and I'm not saying this because I want to beat you up spiritually or unnecessarily discourage you. But I I do think we, we should all carefully examine our desire or lack of desire to know the scriptures. Is our attitude and posture toward the Word of God in line with the following texts? Psalm 19, verse 10, reminds us that the Scriptures are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Psalm 119, 14 through 16. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. 1 Peter 2, verses 2 and 3, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it, You may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Brothers and sisters, we we have such a treasure in the word of God. This book was breathed out by God and we, we hold it in our hands. This is the very wisdom of heaven. God used their careful examination of the scriptures to bring the Bereans to faith in Christ. Look at verse 12. Many of them, therefore, believed. With not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Again, we see the diversity and beauty of the early church. A gospel for all people brings all kinds of people to faith. And it brings them into a family where each one of them is valued and needed for the church to function as God intends. Have you noticed, friends, over the last few chapters, the prominent role that 
women have played in the early church. I, I was listening to an interview this past week with Dr. Daniel Aiken and Jen Wilkin, a name familiar to most of you, and they were talking about complementarianism, something we embrace here. And there's something Jen said to Dr. Aiken that sort of stopped me in my tracks when I was watching it. She said, I, I long... I long for churches to not only see the gifts of women as nice, but as necessary. I think what we find here in Acts, in God's sovereignty, is that all those he's bringing to faith and the gifts he would then give them were necessary. Necessary for the building up and maturing of the church. Men, women, even regenerated children, slaves, free, Greek, Jew, all of them necessary. Now, into the excitement of this little Berean revival, who enters the story again? Verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Notice what made these Jews so angry that they would travel 50 miles to Berea. Midway through verse 13. This is what angered them. The word of God was proclaimed. The word of God was proclaimed. They came with one goal and only one to stop the gospel from advancing. Stop this disruptive witness. In their minds, this message of King Jesus would just keep turning everything upside down and it needed to be stopped. So what happened when they showed up in Berea, verse 14? Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. They wanted to stop the gospel. Good luck. Nice try. It can't be done. It can't be done. You see, opposition to the gospel simply becomes a means of accomplishing the Great Commission. Opposition doesn't squelch the gospel. It just pushes it to new places and new people. This is incredible how we've seen this happen. We've seen it all throughout the book of Acts. Under the sovereign hand of God, opposition is turned into opportunity. Opportunity for the gospel to keep spreading. There's, there's so much we could take away from this text, but let me, let me close with this. I want to encourage you to consider the power of God's word. Consider the power of God's word, whether it's Billy Graham and his incredible New York revival in 1957 or Peter's 
Pentecost sermon in Acts 2 or Paul's sermons in Thessalonica and Berea. In each case, there was no elaborate plan to coerce people into believing the gospel. And there wasn't some sort of carefully crafted approach that would ensure a positive response. No, the word was opened and it was explained. That's it. The word was opened and it was explained and the Holy Spirit worked in power. That's how it's always happened. People are awakened spiritually when the word is opened and it's explained. And the spirit attends to it in power. So brothers and sisters, this is why we've encouraged you and will continue to encourage you to invite to invite your unbelieving friends to meet with you to read and discuss the Bible. By the power of the Spirit, let the Word work. Let the Word work. As you do that, those you share the gospel with, those you open up the scriptures and show them Christ, they will have to decide what they will do with Jesus. But your job is to open the scriptures and explain them. This should also encourage parents and grandparents here this morning. Amidst the indifference and disobedience of children, we must find the time to open and explain God's word. By the power of the Spirit, let the Word work. Let the Word work. As I read many times over our text for this morning's sermon, there was another text of Scripture that kept coming to mind. It's Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. This is what it says. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. And shall succeed in the thing for which I sent. When Paul opened the word and explained it, some rejected, some embraced it, but it accomplished the work and the will of God. Ray Ortland writes, my word in verse 11 of Isaiah 55, my word sums up all God's gracious promises. We know that God's promises not only last, but they give us life. We don't keep the hope of the gospel alive. This hope keeps us alive. Like the rain. It may take time for the new life to fully burst forth. But rain never fails. Neither does the promise of God to save sinners. Brothers and sisters, where God has called you, be faithful. 
open the word, explain the word, show people Jesus and God will accomplish his sovereign plan. And he'll do it through us, people like us. I want to encourage you to commit yourself to open the word, to explain the word, and to pray that the Spirit will work in saving power. Let's pray.